Good morning. Is it working? reading this morning is from Old Testament 1 Kings chapter 19 starting at verse 1 to 12. So please join with me this morning as we read from God's word. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say may the gods deal with me be ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that, that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals, a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat. For the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. These are the words of the Lord. If you're just joining us for the first time today, over this Christmas season, we're considering a series called God With Us. And this is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 23, where we read, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The good news that we celebrate at Christmas time is that God has come to dwell among his people. So what we're considering is what does it mean for God to be with us through the different seasons and stages of life? Because God is with us always. Um, and on Christmas Day, we're going to explore the Matthew passage in greater context. But in the weeks leading up to Christmas, we're considering different physical and metaphorical places in Scripture where we see people encountering God at low points, at challenging times. 
and where they can learn and see that God is with them. Last Sunday, we looked, about, looked at the idea of God being with us in the valley, and we considered Psalm 84 and that idea of blessed are those whose strength is in you as they journey through the valley of Baca. Uh, towards that we talk, spoke about the Israelite people journeying to the temple through the Valley of Barca, which also means the Valley of Tears. And the temple is a place in Jerusalem, which means a place of peace. And so last Sunday we spoke about the idea that oftentimes um, the journey to the place of peace can be through a place of tears. Uh, and it's Often the, the, mountaintops, the mountaintops is where we really enjoy God, but we get to know Him intimately. Our experience of God is different in the valley. Today we're considering the wilderness, God with us in the wilderness. And the wilderness is different to the valley. As we spoke last week, the valley is a place that we pass through. Um, and as we saw last week also, that was done in community. There was a sense of God's people together traveling through the valley. The wilderness, however, uh, can be a much longer period of time. It is a dry, a barren, and a desolate place. In fact, it would be fair to say that when we're in a wilderness experience, we can't see any light at the end of the tunnel. When we're going through a valley, we're in a difficult time, but we're passing through. We can see the end. When we find ourselves in the wilderness, we are at our absolute end, and it feels as though we, we can't go any further and we can't see any hope beyond our current situation. Oftentimes, um, wilderness experiences follow precede mountaintop experiences. You think about Jesus, for example, and I touched on this again last week in Mark chapter 1, where Jesus experiences his baptism by John, a very high moment in Jesus's life where he comes out of the water and there's this beautiful moment of the Spirit descending upon Jesus and Jesus hearing these words from his Father God in heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well Please, This is a mountaintop moment for Jesus as his ministry is about to begin. But then the scriptures tell us that immediately Jesus was driven out into the wilderness uh, where he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, kind of that mountaintop being thrust into the wilderness. I wonder about your experience, if you can identify with this. Perhaps there have been times or seasons in your life where things have been going really well. Maybe you've experienced a mountaintop type experience and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, something shifts and you're now in a very different place. I think about someone perhaps who's enjoying good health, feeling as though everything's going along okay and they go for a checkup for something minor and then all of a sudden that leads to a diagnosis of something much more major which ends up becoming life-changing. I think of people even in this church who've been faithful in their marriages for decades and thinking as though the marriage is going along well only to discover that for some time their spouse had been unfaithful. And all of a sudden, everything changes and you're in a wilderness place. 
I think about people, and I know of some here, who experienced good, lengthy employments in certain industries and then unbeknowingly became retrenched and went into a very deep and dark time of depression. He's not here this morning, but I know of one person in particular in this church who experienced a wilderness time in that scenario. I think for Bron and I, um, a mountaintop to a wilderness experience was when we were going through an IVF journey, and particularly with our first son, Brendan. We'd been trying to fall pregnant for 12 months unsuccessfully, and then we started down the, the IVF path. And, uh, and the first time, the first transfer, Bronnie was told that we were pregnant and that, um, that we had a little child on the way. And that was such a, a mountaintop experience for us. And I remember her going out that very week and, and buying some clothes and blankets and so forth, only a week later to find out that it wasn't, in fact, a genuine pregnancy, what's known as a, a chemical pregnancy. And all of a sudden, there's no pregnancy in your back in the wilderness. It's that mountaintop to wilderness experience. And it's during these times, and I guess the big idea that I want us to explore and consider this morning, a little bit like the valley, these are difficult, difficult times. But often it's the hard times of life that put our faith to the test, where we've got nothing left but to depend on and trust in God. And it's during these times that our greatest need can in fact become a gift when it drives us to depend on God. Our deepest need can in fact become a gift when it drives us to depend upon God. And this morning we're considering the story of Elijah in 1 Kings. And the reason we're looking at Elijah is because Elijah experienced a mountaintop, kind of a peak experience that we'll come to in a moment, and then very quickly found himself, both in a physical as well as a metaphorical wilderness place. Elijah in the wilderness. 1 Kings 19, 1 to 3. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Elijah has gone from a mountaintop experience, defeating the prophets of Baal, experiencing the power and the, the majesty of God's judgment on, on his enemy, if you like. And then at the threat of Queen Jezebel, he runs. He runs for his life and he finds himself at the end of his rope. He says, I am done. I've had enough, Lord. Maybe there are some here this morning who find themselves 
in a similar place. Maybe for you, you can recall a time when you were in this place, but maybe, maybe you're actually in that place today. And I want to pray and trust that God will speak to you. Because when we're at the end of our rope, when we're at the end of ourselves, it's a very depressing and difficult place to be. It's a place where we so desperately need to encounter and experience the goodness and the grace and the rest and the peace and the mercy of God. But sometimes when we are actually at the very end of ourselves, the goodness and the grace and the peace and the rest of God can be more theoretical than experiential. We don't need the theory at those times in our lives, do we? (laughs) We need the experience. We need the experience of God's peace. Not just to talk about or to know and understand in our minds, but to literally experience and feel in our hearts. This is where Elijah finds himself. Well, there's a bit of a backstory that we need to consider to understand why Elijah found himself in that place. Um, Elijah's story begins in 1 Kings chapter 17. And the context of Elijah's ministry is that the northern kingdom of Israel had had 19 consecutive evil kings over a 200-year time span. And the current king or the contemporary king for Elijah the prophet was King Ahab. And we read just at the end of chapter 17 that he was more evil and more wicked than any of the other preceding 18 kings. That he did more wicked and more evil in the Lord's sight than any of those other kings for 200-year period. The other thing is that King Ahab married Queen, or who became Queen Jezebel. And she was, if you like, a Gentile, a foreigner who worshipped foreign god Baal. And so Ahab became a worshipper himself of Baal. And she continued to lead what was a very evil man even further astray. And this is the time that we read in Scripture that God raises Elijah up. Elijah's name means the Lord is Jehovah. And so just his very name is an affront to the king who is in effect saying that the Lord is Baal. Well, Elijah comes to King Ahab and he says, At my word there will be neither dew nor rain for, um, until I speak. Now, this is a... And, and, then, and basically, and then God says to Elijah, and some of you might be recalling from when we spoke about Elijah last year, but God then sent Elijah away. Elijah would very quickly become a wanted man in Israel because three years of drought, of no rain, meant famine, it meant unemployment, it meant death. Elijah was not a very popular person at this time. He did his job. He confronted the king if he's evil, explained that there would be no rain until he said so, and then he got the heck out of there. One of the things I've enjoyed about Elijah this week is I think that the guy was an ultra-marathon runner. There are several times where he runs, and he ran to the Kareth Ravine. 
um, there's another occasion where he runs. And I looked it up on Google, and both of these distances are well over the 100K mark, and that's considered an ultra-marathon runner. So I've enjoyed uh, thinking about Elijah out on my runs this week. But God takes, after Elijah confronts Ahab, God takes Elijah to this place called the Kareth Ravine, and that means to cut down. And what God does during this time, in a sense, is cut Elijah down. And Elijah, he does a deep work in Elijah's heart. God does a deep work in Elijah so that God can, in effect, do a deep work through him. Sometimes God will take us to dark and lonely places so that he can do a deep work in us because he wants to do a deep work through us. Anyway, during this time of cutting down, God proves his faithfulness to Elijah by providing for him. The ravens bring Elijah bread and meat, and Elijah drinks from a brook. Now, Elijah stays in this place for a good two, potentially close to three years. Wow, that's a long time of eating meat from ravens and bread. But after a while, and remember... We're in a period of drought. The brook dries up. And this drives Elijah away from the Kareth Ravine. God has obviously done his work in Elijah. He tells Elijah to go to a place called Zarephath. And when Elijah arrives to Zarephath, he sees an old widow collecting sticks. He has a conversation with her, and many of you will know the story. She's collecting those sticks to go home and bake some bread, and this will be the bread that her and her son will eat before they die. And Elijah says, can you bring me some water and can you bring me some bread? And the widow basically explains her situation, that if we give you, you our bread, well, then we're not going to have any. And um, Elijah says, God will be faithful. And so she brings him his bread and then he, in fact, goes and stays with them for a while. And this meager supply of oil and flour just continues to be replenished. God continues to provide the son ends up dying, and Elijah raises the son to life. It's the first resurrection miracle in Scripture. Elijah is a very profound moment. But what we see here is that God continues to prove himself sufficient for Elijah. God continues to prove himself powerful to Elijah because of what God is going to do through Elijah. Then God tells Elijah after three years to go back to King Ahab. Now, this would have been very difficult because remember, Elijah is like Israel's most wanted for, as far as King Ahab is concerned. Elijah goes back to him and challenges the king to a duel. Um, the, the prophets of Baal, of which there were 450, verse himself, the prophet of Yahweh. And they have two bulls and they have this idea where the God who um, strikes the sacrifice with fire is the true God. As you would know, Elijah and Elijah gets the, the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, go crazy. Nothing happens to their sacrifice. Elijah gets four large tanks, bottles of water in a drought period. So he has extreme faith pours it on the sacrifice. As you know, God consumes the sacrifice. Elijah destroys 450 prophets of Baal. That's generally a part of Scripture that we kind of <laughs> go over pretty quickly. But um, he was a bit of an action man that day. And, uh, and, then, and then God, being true to his word, um, sends the rain. 
sends the rain on this. And that's where we get to in our story, where um, Elijah knows the kind of slaughter that the prophets of Baal have now experienced at the wrath of God. And Queen Jezebel has made this threat. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Isn't it interesting that Elijah has spent the last three years depending entirely on God's provision, on God's protection, and he has now even experienced God's most powerful performance. And yet the threat of Queen Jezebel sends Elijah running for his life. He is now in a wilderness place. He's now in a place of desperation, in need of refreshment. And as I've been reflecting upon this, I've been thinking about Elijah, so passionate for the Lord as a prophet, such a difficult calling, such a difficult task that God had given him. Why was Elijah, and Elijah had experienced the power, as I said, the presence, the performance of God but he was spiritually dry. He was in the wilderness. He was fearing for his life. In fact, he ran away in fear for his life, and then he actually asked God, God, I'm, I've had enough. Could you take my own life? That's how low he felt. How do we find spiritual refreshment during the time of wilderness? You know, I think... As evangelicals, our tradition is to work for God. Even though we know we're not saved by works, um, we find it easier to do for God than to be with God. And perhaps Elijah had been an evangelical Christian. Perhaps Elijah had been so concerned about doing for God that he hadn't really yet truly been with God in a restorative, refreshing way. I can't help but think about King David, who we again spoke about last week. And in terms of being with God, David offers us a model of someone who did incredible things for God, but also seem to have that balance of learning to be with God. You couldn't write Psalm 23 without spending good, lengthy, regular periods of time with God in his presence. Wouldn't it be amazing to arrive at a place where we could say with David, I shall not be in want because the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. That is a statement of a person who has been spiritually refreshed. They know that their deepest need is the Lord's presence and they are experiencing and encountering the Lord's presence on a regular basis. And you see, we can't experience the presence and the peace of God 
in the busyness and the chaos of life. Because to find that place of rest, we actually need to slow down. As the psalm says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. The five-minute daily devotions don't cut it if we're to truly experience the depth of spiritual refreshment that is on offer for those who God is their shepherd. And this is hard. This is really hard. And it's obviously contextual for each of us. What does it mean to both make and find time and space where we can lie down, if you will, with our shepherd and be refreshed and be restored and be renewed. Elijah was in, back to Elijah, Elijah's in a place of desperation and an angel comes to visit him. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is to rest in the presence of God. You can't sign up on a roster to rest in God. No one's going to see you resting in God. You're not going to look or appear to be a really spiritual person because no one's going to see you. So much of what we do in our tradition to serve God is done publicly in community. And, and that's wonderful. And I'm, I'm all signed up for that. But I also recognize that to truly be with God, we have to make those times where we can slow down and learn to lie with our shepherd and rest. And there are times when, in fact, this is the most important and the most spiritual thing that we can do. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time after Elijah had already had a meal and a rest and touched him. And he said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Uh, you, the Mount of Horeb is um, synonymous with Mount Sinai. So God actually took Elijah to what is known in the Scriptures as the Mountain of God. It's the same place where the burning bush was. It's the same place where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. It's the same place where God in Exodus 34 revealed his glory to Moses. Elijah took a 40-day journey to get to this place and he finds himself in the presence of God and God poses him this question, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. We're about to see where Elijah's deepest need drives him 
to depend upon God. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. The earth shook, the wind raged, and the fire burned. All of these things speak of God's majesty, God's power, God's enormity. But in this instance, at Elijah's deepest point of need, God was not in the remarkable. God was in the ordinary. When life gets so difficult, why is God's voice so still, so small? Why does God whisper? Because he's close. He's close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed 
in spirit. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Because I know that God is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. The book of James tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I love the image of the running father in Luke 15. As soon as the son turns toward the father, the father runs to the son. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. God is so close that he will even hold us by the hand. Just as a parent holds the hand of a child to protect them, to keep them safe, and to reassure them of their presence. When we find ourselves in the wilderness, God is there with us. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This, men and women of God, brothers and sisters of faith, is the beautiful, wonderful good news of Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are not a God who is distant or far, or remote, or removed from life's circumstances. Thank you that you are a God who is so intimately close and involved and concerned and cares for each one, for each person. We thank you that at this time of year we remember and celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For those, Lord, who perhaps find themselves in a valley or in a wilderness place, may they encounter you. May they encounter your grace, your beauty, your rest, your presence, your peace your joy, your restoration, your refreshment, and your fulfillment. And just like Elijah who encountered you and then you reminded him of his calling and sent him back to do the job that you'd called him to do, might you do the same for us. Restore and refresh us. Return us to our calling to be your people, walking in your light and displaying that light to others. Thank you, God, that you are close. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.